On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. To my right hand side of Orla O'Connor, who's the director of the National Women's Council. You're very welcome along, Orla. Thank you, Emmett. And we also have Larry Donnelly, who is a University of Galway, NUI Galway uh, law lecturer. And he also writes a political column with journal.ie. Uh, Larry's the optimist among us coming in in his shorts this morning into the studio. I'm <laughs> uh, not sure why, <laughs> after what we've had for the last few weeks. You're both very welcome, folks. Um, we know we're going to be talking a lot about crime, so let, let's just kind of get it out of the way because it is the the overweening dominant uh, narrative of the week, a, a dreadful personal uh, tr- toll and tragedy on the victim. But Orla, what, what do you make of the coverage? I mean, you've got Leo Varadkar talking tough and the Sunday Independent, as you'd kind of expect them to be, I suppose, saying mm-hmm. there's all sorts of measures to be taken. Yeah, I mean, this is a really horrendous, serious assault and you really hope that the uh, victim... Stephen Termini makes, you know, a a really uh, good recovery. It's horrendous. I mean, I think very much the response in the papers is straight to numbers of guards, guards on the street, visibility of guards. And, you know, there is... there is something in that and that's important in terms of that visibility and presence and there are clear issues in terms of recruitment but also and, and I mean actually the, the papers don't mention that but the issue of retention and why aren't we retaining um, guards and what can be done there in terms of we're, we're getting you know such high numbers of guards taking early retirement and leaving and that's loss of experience as well so I think that's an issue but very much and I think it's interesting that Brendan O'Connor uh, which is on the front of the Independent he's asking the really important important question, which is why would a teenage boy commit such a violent act? And what is going on in terms of our communities that that, that happens or that that is, is in some way a way to act or a way to behave? And that's why I think we really need to look at this broader than a criminal justice response. We, we have to look at it in terms of what's what are the programmes? What's happening in communities that's supporting young people? But we also need to look at it as well in terms of, so how do we make our city a different place? Una Mullally has written, you know, extensively in the Irish Times about how do you create a different culture? How do you create different streetscapes? How do you make it family friendly? So what you're and saying that's is where we need, we to, need to do both, right? So we need Absolutely. Gardaí as well. Yeah. A lot of people listening will say, yeah, but can we get the Gardaí first? Because that's the short term those things you're talking about are, are multiple years, presumably, to do. They are, but unless we do it now, we're going to be back here time and time again. And, and that's what's been happening when, when yeah, a person has been assaulted. Yeah, I mean, also, my own personal reflection was I, I wrote years ago about O'Connell Street. Back in the 90s, I wrote about uh, how dangerous O'Connell Street was. So what frustrates me is we are in this cycle. You know, it's just kind of, this Absolutely. isn't a new thing. Yeah. I heard people, which drives me insane, is the COVID thing. They, oh, it's all to do with COVID or people went a bit wobbly mm. during COVID. This was long before COVID. But Larry, as an American who we have here living among us for many years now, um, how is this going to play out? Because the kind of the, the stereotypical of Ireland, um, image of Ireland abroad and in the US tourism market is this nice place, very well welcoming, very warm, probably quite safe place up to now. Yeah. And of course, we always you have people saying statistically we're not the worst, etc. But just in terms of the, the impact of this story... How do you weigh it up at this point? It's significant. I suppose first I want, I want to endorse everything that Ola has said. The The solution to this is multifaceted. It's not going to be an easy solution. But yes, policing is a big part of it. Getting cops on the street is really important. But also the deeper societal issues that are at play here. These are children who did this to this uh, to this man. Uh, and what is driving them to do that or think this is fun or whatever, whatever, get kicks from it or whatever. So there needs to be a real interrogation of that. 
But this is an old problem. I mean, this is around forever. Uh, I think some of the narrative that, oh, everything went crazy after COVID, I'm not so sure about that. I think that this has been ongoing for a while. And I I suppose by way of personal reflection, I'll put it to you this way. uh, I feel 10 times safer in Boston City Center than I do in Dublin City Center. Um, So there's a real issue there. Uh, In terms of perception, this has led on irishcentral.com, which is the leading Irish American news website. It has been the lead story for the past five days since this happened Every day this story has featured. Uh, So this could have a deleterious consequence uh, on the tourism market, which obviously uh, we need. We, in particular, uh, Americans in many ways are the best tourists in this country. They stay the longest. They spend the most money. Um, Obviously, there are economic uh, consequences to that. So in addition to the very deep issues that Ola uh, mentioned, you know, I'd also look at it from this other, I suppose, brass tacks. And how do you you think those that do engage with this story in the U.S. would react to this? Will they say, look these things happen, we have problems in our own cities and they'll be reasonably sanguine or will they say, God, that place doesn't sound the best? There, there will be some of that, but it, at least in particular the Irish Americans who, with whom I'm most familiar in the Boston area, uh, most of them, to be frank, would be uh, of West of Ireland origins. So Dublin wouldn't be a place that would be on their bucket list anyway. Uh, I suspect for a lot of them it will increase their uh, desire to avoid Dublin. Maybe they'll land in Dublin Airport and go somewhere else immediately. So uh, I think it could have more bad consequences perhaps for the capital uh, than the region as a whole, than the country as a whole. Uh, but I, I, you know, also I should say, uh, you know, speaking as a fellow American, I, I feel really bad for uh, Mr. Termini. I know he had taken out a bank card. He was planning to move here. Uh, I hope he won't be deterred. And I can tell him uh, that it's a very worthwhile move for him to make. It's a great place to live. Uh, I hope he's not put off by that. And I certainly hope one thing I'd like to see is when he when he recovers, and hopefully he'll make uh, a full recovery. I hope he gets uh, a nice week at Ashford Castle or something like that. I think he deserves it. Yeah, absolutely. I think we'd all uh, say that's true. Uh, Orla, yeah. in terms of the the politics of this crime story, obviously Helen McEntee as Justice Minister, and we all do this. We like to personalise in you know, on one mm. person. This one person is responsible for all the good and bad that's going on in a particular area of Irish life. I mean, what's your own assessment of how that's playing out? And obviously we, Drew Harris is, is another figure kind of floating into the, the foreground as well. But in terms of kind of Helen McEntee and what she has and hasn't done and could do better and so on, what, what do you read into yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, I do see that as quite knee-jerk in terms of, you know, this story and then being critical of her as a minister. And, you know, some of the some of the um, sources being quoted in, in some of the papers are, um, I mean, my, I suppose, experience of her as a minister, particularly in the area of gender-based violence, has been that she is a very thoughtful and considered minister and puts time into, you know, what needs time in terms of working the solutions out. We have now in Ireland one of the most ambitious uh, strategies for gender-based violence in terms of how you tackle domestic and sexual violence. So I, I do think it's knee-jerk. And it goes back, I think, to, you know, the first response being about, you know, numbers of guards. It's it's knee-jerk that it's not looking at the whole problem. And isn't she, um, is she vulnerable though to, to the, I, I see a lot of commentaries about she did, she's doing this hate speech bill and people are saying, well, why, why are you wasting time on this when there's far bigger things? There's people being beaten up in the street. So is, is she vulnerable to that critique at least? Yeah, but I think that that critique is in some ways nonsense because, you know, you have to work on a number of different fronts. And I mean, again, going back to the piece from Brendan O'Connor today, because he actually speaks about that in terms of what's the hate involved in the violence that we're seeing on the streets. And we we need to look at that in much more depth. And the hate crime bill is, is one of the pieces. And they're all different pieces in a jigsaw in terms of how you tackle violence. Um, in the, you know, in the same vein, we're seeing um, legislation come up 
come forward that looks at uh, more serious sentences for things around serious assaults, for things around sexual violence. And they're all important pieces. So I do think the criticism of her is unfair in light of, you know, in light of the assault. But I think that there are, are serious things that she needs to do. I mean, even, for example, on the guards, we are seeing, you know, the fact, you know, it's the 185 a week as an allowance uh, when you're going through training in Templemore. Mm. I don't think that's enough in terms of encouraging people. Yeah, I think where, where she is vulnerable is is the numbers. You, you have a guard of force that's shrinking at a time when the demographics are going the other way. That's a hard one to escape, Larry, isn't it? Take all the heat and politics and emotion out of it. The figures show our guard of force is shrinking. Yeah, absolutely. When we've got greater need than ever before. Uh, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, I agree that, that Helen McEntee is getting, you know, some blame. And I think it's unjustifiable because uh, the issues in Dublin are a lot bigger uh, than one minister for justice. So I think some of the blame that's being assigned to her is over the top. Uh, but yes, she certainly does need to do uh, every effort. And I think be innovative and think outside the box when it comes to uh, God of recruitment. For one thing, uh, the age the age issue, 35 and you get over 35 and you can't go on. There are a lot of people, I think, uh, in the <laughs> late 30s. Mm. There are fit 35-year-olds exactly. Yeah. Who, who, there are 40-year-olds who can run down the and, road. And what, I, what I'd say about that is those in their late 30s, etc., are coming to the job, they bring interesting and different diverse life experiences uh, to the job of being uh, of policing, which I think uh, the force could really benefit from. Uh, and lots of the recommendations, again, uh, you know, with respect to the Commission on the Future of Policing, uh, a lot of those still need to be implemented. There's lots of work uh, to be done uh, on that front. So I think that's where she really needs to invest, invest some time. Uh, I might slightly disagree. I do think I agree uh, that she is vulnerable, at least in the court of public opinion, if it appears that the perceptive is that she's more focused on the hate crime bill uh, than on the nuts and bolts of policing and locking up criminals. And I say this particularly because uh, I think it's pretty well known that Helen McEntee uh, does have leadership ambitions. And I think with ordinary grassroots Fina Gale people, uh, I think that that line of critique uh, could leave a mark on her. Yeah, and for me, or the other part of this story, which doesn't get talked up enough, is Dublin as a place, right? So mm-hmm. the resources Dublin gets, you know, versus other parts of the country. And people people listening to me now will say, that's not our problem. Our problem is rural Ireland, etc. But during COVID, and I was in there a lot, the, the city was kind of abandoned from a services point of view. The litter problem grew. So, I mean, there, there is like, what, what is Dublin being, that yeah. you said, re- reimagined and what kind of resources does it get? And a lot of TDs, uh, you know, are not from the area. They don't necessarily have a natural affinity with the city, even though it's the capital. So is Dublin as a city in terms of the resources it gets neglected? That's, that's at least a valid question. Well, I think one of the things that certainly has been neglected is community services within Dublin City and certainly for a lot of our members in the Women's Council, like in terms of the supports that are needed around addiction, for example, that they are un- they're totally under-resourced. Um, and I think that's what's needed in terms of reimagining the city. This has to be an integrated, you know, it has to involve those community organisations as part of, you know, as part of coming forward with the solutions and particularly youth organisations within that as well. So there needs to be a reimagining of the city, but a reimagining in terms of how how we come about with that plan. So it's not simply a policing plan or it's not simply Dublin City Council coming up with some of it. It has to be much more comprehensive and really involving the, the people who matter. Yeah. And Larry, we've got businesses in particular who are based in the centre of the city. They're in the Sunday Times, uh, quoted on page four. I mean, they've got a much more immediate problem. They they don't really care as much about the long term because they have to open their stores next week. 
and they're complaining that there's just no visibility or inadequate visibility of police on the streets. So they're looking not necessarily for some kind of draconian crackdown or um, kind of Giuliani-style zero tolerance. What they're looking for, though, is visible presence that would, at least as far as they're concerned, make customers and so on feel safer, more likely to take a trip into the city centre. Because a lot of times in Dublin now, it's a competition between the suburbs and the city centre for footfall and resources. So you can understand it from their admittedly narrow but important perspective that they just want to see Garthy on the ground outside their shop, outside their store. Absolutely. It's it's terribly important. Uh, their lives and their livelihoods are dependent on this. And make no mistake, they're in, they're in big competition, as you say. People, uh, you know, it used to be back in the day, people would go into city centres and do their shopping. Now they're much more likely to go to places like Dundrum uh, to do their shopping. So if these businesses aren't getting people uh, in the doors, uh, it's a big problem. And to the extent to which uh, this problem and the lack of visible policing and people being afraid to go into the city centre, uh, that can only have negative consequences on them. Uh, and I've had conversations, no, numerous conversations in pubs with barmen, et cetera, and they'll, they, they tell you the same story. You never see any Gardaí around here. You never see people. We often walk tourists uh, to a taxi rank or whatever because it's just not safe. And, and you know, again, those that perception, as long as it's out there, uh, is disastrous for city centre businesses. Yeah, and I also wonder about the whole working from home piece, right? And, and I'm not getting into that debate, right? <laughs> but I do think during COVID, a lot of people started working from home that didn't previously, so they mm. weren't in the yep. city centre for not, you know, just the practical uh, implication of it. There's a story on the business post about Google trying to force people back into the office, which is not a great way to go either. But there, I think it goes back to your point, Orla, doesn't it, that the reimagining of cities, you know, I'm a friend of mine who works from home says, well, why do I, it's not my fault if my local coffee store is no longer, you know, I'm not there anymore. That's not my problem. But maybe it is his problem long term because we, we could hollow out these cities because office workers, there are about 25% of people who are in a city at any one time. Mm. So if they're gone out of there, that, that is important. Well, it is. And it... It also does go back to the piece I was saying about how you support communities that are that are living, people who are living in the city centre and how they're able to, you know, participate, be involved in activities like, you know, one of the things I was really struck by um, in terms of, you know, culture night and just families being in the city, being in the city late at night. And that's an experience I think many of us have when we go, you know, if we go away on holidays into, into other capital cities, there's because there's lots of different things happening in the cities and there's and there's much more of a fam- family friendly environment. I was about to say we need more dining out. You know, well, yeah, having and, seen the weather of the last week well, or two, maybe not. Yeah, but it's it's also more, you know, you, you need places where families can mm. go that are reasonably priced. That isn't all about the pub culture, but you also need art more art and cultural places as well that are in the city centre so that there's more things for people to do and to engage in and that's the type of plan that's needed and then we also need so real do we, do we need a mayor jobs. to pull all of that together because it's well, disparate it could be, isn't it it's yeah I mean it could departments. be I mean whether you put it in terms of the responsibility of Dublin City Council or whether you, you put it uh, the responsibility of the department but you know the department of local government that is what's needed. And and I would go back to the importance of the community development organisations and the inner city community organisations that have to be a real part of that. And not just because we've seen other sort of task forces, but they haven't amounted to, to anything. And we're still in the same situation and maybe a worse situation in some ways. So, Larry, we don't need another task force. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you could be on a task force, Larry, for all I know, but oh, it God. is the traditional no, no, Irish no, solution no, no. to an Irish problem is set up an old task force and make sure they take a long time to report. Well, speaking <laughs> of problems and solutions, 
solutions. Ola mentions the idea of having, you know, culture night and having people in the city and having people around. You know, the whole working from home phenomenon could create an opportunity. If there are going to be people working from home, uh, that would, to my way of thinking, free up uh, a lot of office space. Why don't we talk about thinking about converting some of that office space to actual living space, yeah. uh, you know, given the depth of the housing crisis we have to bring people into these places uh, and make them attractive communities uh, for people to live in and have that vibrancy that, as Ola said, Una Mullally is constantly writing about uh, in the Irish Times to, reins- to reinvigorate these places. So out of a crisis, there may be an opportunity. Yeah, because I mean, a lot of it is office land. I mean, if you go to Fitzwilliam Square, you go to Marion Square, there are legal offices, there are accountancy, nothing against accountants or lawyers, but I mean, it, it's it's a bit sterile once it comes to the evening or the weekend. So as you say, if we have them as residential communities, but equally they're owned by companies and individuals who might say, I don't want them converted to uh, yeah. housing. So, you know, the, it's not just as easy to flick a switch, but the idea is, is it's appealing to us, isn't it? It is. And it's, it's also about the green spaces. It's about playgrounds. It's about places where people can gather in, in small places that aren't all about going spending money either. So, so you make them much more accessible. And it is, it also has to be about quality jobs for the people who live mm. in, in our inner city. And, and we're failing on that front. Um, so, so we have to increase people's income levels who are living in, in the inner city and who are, you know, not in the, in the high rise apartments or in the Googles. Um, so that so that the city is accessible. For I'm them so as disappointed well. there isn't a simple solution to all this from both of you. you know, <laughs> I, I like silver bullets, right? I mean, here you're telling me we have to do a lot more shows. We'll have to do a lot more programs. Uh, I'm actually a bit disappointed. On the record with Gavin Riley, brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Joining me, as I said, to review the paper's strangely busy July newspapers is Orlo Connor, who is the director of the National Women's Council of Ireland, and Larry Donnelly, who is a lecturer at the University uh, College in Galway. He's also a columnist with the journal.ie. Now, folks, as I said, busy enough, some controversial stuff. Um, the one that really catches my eye is a report in the Business Post, Orlo, which says, revealed 15 separated children have gone missing from the state's care. I mean, it's, it's, it's a short sentence, but it's... Pretty impactful. Um, it's a HICWA report who says there's a significant level of non-compliance with na- national child protection and welfare standards. And it spells out a whole load of problems, institutional failings of various types. They almost run out of bullet points in the business post to highlight the gaps here. It's pretty serious stuff. And we'll come on in a second to another Tuzla story. It isn't there weekend, I'm afraid, in the uh, Irish Daily Mail talking about a father who was... Uh, falsely accused of being a child abuser. So it's pretty bad stuff. But let's get into the nuts and bolts of this business post one, Orla. It just seems to be they're overwhelmed. They're not resourced properly. Procedures are not being followed. Best practice has certainly not been followed. And caught in all of this is a group of children. One particular part that stuck out to me, it says some of these children who've been separated from their parents or they came here separated originally it says they're living in horrendous accommodation and care arrangements. Look, I mean, we, the mind boggles what that could mean. What do you make of all of this? Yeah, I mean, this is a really significant piece. And it's Daniel Murray who's brought the story into the Business Post. In some ways, maybe it's unfortunate that it's coming out while the doll is in recess because it is so serious, the issues that are being raised here. You would really want to see this get serious political attention. I mean... There's been a number of, you know, various reports, I think, about difficulties within uh, Tusla and how Tusla is in crisis. But in a way, by I think by highlighting the experience of separated children, it is just showing the level of crisis within the organisation. And, you know, for listeners, so we're, we're talking about 
people who are under, you know, young people, they're under 18. They've come to Ireland with, you know, without a connection to a parent, without any sort of supporting adults. They are really on their own. So they are the most vulnerable group. And they've come from situations of trauma, of conflict. You know, um, there are numbers um, cited from Ukraine, from Somalia and from, from a host of other countries. So they are the most vulnerable. And yet what is being, you know, really revealed very clearly in in this today is that they have received the least support from the agency and are being left really on their own and being left in such vulnerable situations. And I mean, the number of things that are highlighted in this in terms of, so for the vast majority of these children, they're ending up in a a range of different types of accommodation um, with no support worker, no caseworker. They could be in hotels, um, in other private accommodation. There's no, well, the report is saying there is no proper um, safety standards. Um, and and then what's happening, and, and I think, you know, this is really sort of a frightening bit. We've got 15 who have gone missing. And we know as well from, from and I'm, I would be familiar with this from members in the Women's Council, Immigrant Council, Ruhama and um, SERP, which is the research body in UCD. They have reported on this and spoken about this in terms of children being vulnerable to exploitation, to trafficking. And, and the um, children's ombudsman, uh, Niall Mundoon, is also um, quoted as as um, being having that concern as well. And so and, th- and do you so put, this do you is put really it there? serious. Well, f- first thing that I notice is why is the report unpublished? I mean, that would be step one, get it out there. Maybe there's Absolutely. got to be some redacting done or something that's held it up, but that, that should be done. But secondly, do you put it down to just the system is overwhelmed? You know, structurally, they don't have the numbers. Do you think it's it's badly run? Do you think it just hasn't got political priority? And I'm, I know you're only mm. reading this, or so, yeah, but what's yeah. your sense of it just from reading what you... No, what, I mean, yeah... My sense of it is, I mean, OK, so clearly there is an underfunding crisis and that, and that comes out there. We don't have enough social workers and this is being experienced throughout. I mean, this, you know, yes, in relation to children, we're seeing the same in terms of domestic violence, for example. There, there, Tusla can, is not fit for purpose right now. But it isn't only that. And this clearly isn't only a funding problem. This is clearly a systemic problem. And, you know, in the report today, it talks about gaps in governance, lack of management oversight, um, not proper um, risk assessment done. And then it also says, which I did find really shocking in this, that even in terms of they stopped medical screening um, of children in 2022. Now, whether that was because of lack of funding or the reason for that decision, I don't know. So this is a systemic crisis. And I, I mean, I think it is quite shocking that um, the interim head of Tusla Kate Duggan talks about the agency being in crisis. Yeah, and I mean, it's never, I, I don't, nothing against Kate Duggan herself, but when you've got interim as well, it, 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 it sort of saps your authority, but if you're not the permanent appointee, so even managerially, they, they probably wanted to kind of clean that whole bit I up. I mean, it, it really points to the need for a root and branch reform of, of Tusla. Mm. And, and it needs strong oversight, I would say, at a political level as well, in terms of what exactly is, is, is going on slightly, in the agency. Is there a slightly more benign reading of this in the sense that obviously we, we've had a lot of international protection applicants coming in suddenly mm reasonably quickly a lot of Ukrainian people have come in from the war 
you know, so suddenly there, there's just a lot of these children coming to our shores that weren't there before. Is that possibly a strand of this at all? Well, or? it's certainly put an added pressure in this. And and I think, I mean, that is the case, you know, it's the case for, for Tusla. We can see it in terms of, you know, also the situation in terms of just finding mm-hmm. accommodation. But, but I think the issue here, and that's why this report is so important, is these are the most vulnerable children. So in terms of I know, people what's happening? who should be getting pro- yeah. priority, this should it be should the be good them. stuff, right? This is yeah, sort of, this absolutely. Be, uh, they should be the ones prioritised. So if it's not happening, happening for them, I think it would raise, you know, it raises questions for, for lots of others. But Tusla are responsible for them. They're in our state care. Sure, absolutely. And there's a whole legal framework that they must adhere to. Larry, um, come in on this for, with me. I mean, it's it's a pretty damning report. As I said, why is it not published? First of all, not, no, good luck to the Business Post getting it. That's not yeah. their problem. But the government should, should sure uh, get this out there, at least highlight the problems. And then we can start going from there. What do you put it down to? Do you put it down to just institutional neglect? Like, presumably the people involved in Tuzla are doing the best job that they can and they're devoted to what they're doing. We're not saying anything other than that. But do they have the right resources? Are the structures in place? I mean, it's a tale of woe, isn't it? I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty horrifying stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I've had limited dealings with, with Tusla, but the people I came across there were, were really good, really dedicated to, to their work. There's no doubt about it. Um, this is, I think, a chronic uh, underfunding uh, crisis, a lack of resources. Uh, as with so many things here, I think housing is one that stands out most. But uh, as our population increased and increased steadily and rapidly, uh, the resources necessary to account for that increase in population uh, were really never put in. I mean, the reality is, sadly, when you have more people, you're going to have more children at risk. Uh, Hence, uh, you need to invest in it. The numbers don't lie. I mean, the reality is uh, the number of uh, separated children in state care has tripled in the past year. Uh, You know, coupled with the underfunding situation, uh, it's almost a perfect storm uh, for the agency. And and as Ola says, these are the most vulnerable of the vulnerable. Uh, And in many ways, this is really, it's unforgivable. It's just not good enough um, that we have children already, uh, you know, coming from horrible situations, uh, now really at risk uh, and in danger. Uh, And again, the the root and branch review uh, is needed. This just isn't good enough. Or like they say, mm. further down the story, this is a draft report, so you know, mm. it hasn't been finally completed, so they won't be giving a detailed response. However, a spokeswoman for Tuzla said refugee and migrant children were one of the most vulnerable groups of children in Ireland. Over the last 18 months, there's been a significant and unprecedented increase in the numbers presenting to Tuzla services, which has significantly impacted the agency's ability to respond to the standard we aim for, said the spokeswoman. So they're pretty much, to give them some credit, they're being unvarnished about it. They're saying... There's been a big increase in the provision, or sorry, not the provision, but people applying to use our services. We haven't got the resources to pick up on Larry's point. And they're just putting it out there saying we don't have enough resources. We can't absorb this many children and cater to their needs. As simple as that. So does that bring in that the minister should allocate more? or like? Well, uh, yeah, absolutely. There's a resources issue. And I think one of the things that, that that's in this piece, which is important, again, from Niall Muldoon, the Children's Ombudsman, is saying that what's happening in Tusla is they're looking at sort of ad hoc sort of arrangements to try to put a plaster on, on, on the situation. And they don't work. You have to have the proper safeguards in place. So, yes, it's... Tusla need resources. They need resources in a number of different areas and, and this isn't the only one. But 
But there is something more systemic here, I think, in terms of, and it is being highlighted. I mean, when we see the report published, we hopefully um, should be able to understand that better. But in terms of the whole governance and the management oversight, that points to wider problems beyond funding that, that really need to be looked at. And also, I think we need to see that, you know, OK, we are at a situation where there's an increase of pressure on services. So what's the plan? You know, what is TUS's plan in terms of managing this? Because it's resources being very clear about what you need resources for. And it's important that it's not in that sort of ad hoc temporary arrangements, because that's how we've been doing things. And it doesn't work and it certainly doesn't protect children. OK, well, they're fighting a war on two fronts, unfortunately, for that organisation and its leadership. Larry, we have a story in the uh Irish Daily Mail, page 18 and 19. I'll just read the headline out because it's a complex enough case when you get into the details. Tuzla apologises for case in which father was falsely laboured as being a child abuser. This is Michael O'Farrell writing here. I mean, this is hair-raising stuff as well, where somebody was falsely accused uh, and now there's been settled high court proceedings. And it just says a substantial sum paid out to one family member. I mean, I, we, neither me nor you can get into the real no. weeds on this, but it doesn't make for good reading at a headline level. It, it's, a, it's a horrific systemic failure at every level. Uh, you know, this relates to a, an accusation that was made uh, some years ago uh, about that, that a, a father had been abusive or violent towards a son. That allegation then was not followed up upon for three years, three years after the allegation was made and until there was any follow-up whatsoever, which is indicative of a very, very serious problem. Uh, then uh, somehow these false notes made it into a file uh, indicating that uh, the father had acknowledged that he had uh, perpetrated um, this abuse uh, and you know that he had stated he's remorseful. Totally and entirely false, it seems. Uh, the mother had left and was living in the north with her daughter. The daughter continually expressed a wish to go back and live with her father the whole time, uh, yet he had this cloud hanging over his head for all of this time. Uh, and as he says, you know, ultimately clearing his name, he said, I just can't fight anymore. And one can only imagine the human damage and the toll that this took. You can't be labeled anything worse uh, than child abusers. So this is just horrific. Yeah, I think, Tuzla, I think their political masters will have to look a lot further on how the agency is operating at the very least. On the record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Here in studio with me is Orlo O'Connor, who is the director of the National Women Council of Ireland, and Larry Donnelly, who is a lecturer at NUI Galway and a columnist with the journal.ie. Now, when this time of the year comes along and stories are a bit lean, and I remember this from my own time, you're kind of casting around. What am I going to do this week, editor? Oh, okay. Well, what I go to is the report card of senior ministers, and the Daily Mail are in early towards the end of July. John Lee, who is their political editor, has done one on page 28 and 29. And you know what? Whether they agree with it or don't agree with it, every single politician reads these things, right? Even though they say they don't. Um, and they look to see their marks at a 10. So let me just give you a brief resume. Uh, Leo Varadkar, Taoiseach, he's sort of weighing in at the sort of average, which is about 6 to 10. So the Daily Mail are not too impressed overall. Miel Martin gets a 7. Eamon Ryan, whew, not great, at a 4. Michael McGrath is kind of Michael McGrath-ish, so he's just sort of steady there on a seven. Norma Foley is at six. Dara O'Brien is the one that caught my eye on a <laughs> three. 
Three. You're not great. Margin of Error Territory. Charlie McEnlogue is on five. I won't go through them all. Rest are on about five, six, seven. Poor old Jack Chambers. Never mind his score. He just gets one paragraph of an entry <laughs> at the bottom. So I'm not sure that's a good idea. Uh, Larry, if I come to you first, I mean, these are always very interesting. Those of us who like to look at politics as a bit of a punch and Judy show, we do get into this sort of stuff. But uh, Dar O'Brien on the three. The reason I reflected that we had Owen Murphy, who was Minister for Housing. There was kind of there was a feeling that Owen Murphy had not achieved um, in what he wanted or set out to in that ministry. Then there was a new broom, which was Darrell O'Brien. He has a different type of personality. Uh, he had a, a, certainly initially made some right-sounding speeches, but on three out of ten, it sounds like he's he's sinking a bit. He's not getting this housing thing ameliorated many much better than any of his predecessors, is the vibe of the piece. I, I think three is a little bit harsh here on Darrell O'Brien. I'm not saying he's done an outstanding job or anything like that, but uh, almost in the same vein as Helen McEntee and the problems in Dublin, uh, the housing crisis is a lot bigger uh, than one minister. Uh, I think three is a little bit uh, on the harsh end uh, of the stick. Um, one of the things that I think John is endeavoring to do here is to go kind of strictly on the merits, or at least as he sees it, uh, as to how they've performed. Uh, and in that vein, you know, I take his points. He has Stephen Donnelly down at seven uh, out of ten. Uh, you know, in perhaps on you can make that case based on performance without regard to politics. But when it comes to politics, uh, I do wonder about the cost overruns in the National Children's Hospital uh, and the extent to which fairly or unfairly uh, some of that might stick uh, politically speaking to Stephen Donnelly. So uh, I wonder if seven out of 10 might be a little bit on the high side when you consider all the politics uh, around that as well and leave aside just performance. Uh, Simon Harris, I noticed that the top performer here, uh, and in many respects, I think that's down to the fact that uh, Harris is a very good communicator. He's an outstanding media performer. Uh, he comes across well, um, you know, and I think he took on the two roles uh, with gusto. Uh, so I think that that's uh, a reasonable rating. But one thing I would say overall is the way to get a decent mark, it seems, <laughs> is to stay out of the firing line, to stay out of trouble, to keep your name out of the paper. More than, so, than so to almost do less is more. Don't do stuff. Otherwise, you build a risk profile for yourself. Or, I mean, I don't know what your own reflects on the different scores are. I mean, it's obviously completely objective, or sorry, completely subjective. It's what John Lee thinks. And yeah. you know, we can't get into John Lee's mind. And we all have with <laughs> our own report cards. But. The, the Darrell O'Brien one isn't great, as Larry says, maybe a little bit undeserved at three. I mean, he's way below everyone else. So it's like, it's all your fault. There is that slight uh, theme to it. What, what do I you mean, think I, of the different scores? I think, I mean, yeah, in general, I think it probably a lot of them rate, rate on average. But I think it would have been very hard to have given Darrell O'Brien a higher score, given the housing crisis that we have. Um, you know, we just seem incapable of dealing with it. And in terms of providing affordable accommodation. And um, we also had the whole, you know, um, like controversy. I mean, the, the poor way in which I think the government um, did not continue, for example, with the eviction ban. And we're also seeing report today from the Simon community, which again shows the chronic lack of affordable accommodation in terms of rented accommodation. So I think I'm not sure how you couldn't have given Dar O'Brien um, a, a lower score. I think some of the things, John Lee, uh, picks out though as sort of measures of success like I did think it was interesting and, and rightly so I think in terms of Stephen Donnelly where he mentions the introduction of free contraception being a key policy thing and you know absolutely I think that was a really important piece um, that he did and that will have you know such long term positive implications uh, for women for, and, and for Irish society so I think he rightly uh, picks on that I did think it was interesting Or if I can ask you to come into the microphone a bit more yeah. Sorry <laughs> uh, I did think it was interesting um, him uh, 
identifying Simon Harris as the highest performer because this was a new portfolio in terms of the whole department of higher education and and some really important things. I mean, I know, Larry, you're saying because maybe he's a good communicator, but important things have come out of that department. And I think, you know, most recently we saw there last week in terms of alternative entry routes into third level outside of the CAO system. But third level still remains very, very badly funded, or I have to say. Absolutely. That that has not been sorted by any means. Yeah, Yeah. it it does. But I suppose I'm... I think there have been some key things that have happened, particularly about trying to widen access, which has been really important. And also, and again, I think probably wasn't expected from that department, but one of the the priorities has been to really bring forward a whole new culture on campuses across third level institutions in terms of how you tackle sexual violence and the issue of consent. And we now have, and it's been, it was a long campaign by students' unions and also by staffing bodies and universities to have a person with the response of how you create that culture on campus. Yeah, so he's, be, he's so been busy on a number he, of fronts. He has and yeah. he's delivered And he gets the credit for that things. this And I morning. think he's listened to what bodies like, for Simon example, Simon Harris will be sending you a said. Christmas card. <laughs> comes our one for the autumn. Um, Larry, in terms of the, some of the other commentary, as you say, Norma Foley is described here as a low-profile minister who's turned things around by steady on spectacular work at her desk. So a lot of it, as you say, is risk aversion. You know, this is what they're, they're, they're saying here in the mail is that people get points for being uh, not particularly visible. Catherine Martin in concerning the recent RTE crisis is an interesting one. They say she should have been far more probing and the meltdown happened on her watch. So, but yes, she gets down to four. So she's just above Darrell O'Brien. And it's a, it's a tough one. We'll talk about RTE in a second. So let's <laughs> hold your horses on that. But it does seem to be if you're not active enough, the Daily Mail is not too keen on you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, well, the, the the sad reality is that, that a lot of the people who have been active, it's because they're they're firefighting. You know, they've got very di- difficult problems uh, on their on their watch. I mean, Catherine Martin, I think, is getting uh, some criticism from all, all sides about the um, the uh, how she's handling uh, the RTE controversy, et cetera. But, um, you know, look, there, there are difficult problems that they, you know, my, my general reaction to the to the rankings in an overall sense is, yeah, I think they're they're reasonably fair. Um, but, um, you know, again, as you say, this is the kind of story that gets written when the doll is finished and there's not a huge amount to go on. Yeah, it's just one of those sort of uh, summer staples, isn't it, really? But it's still, nevertheless, we'll all read it and we'll give out and we'll say, oh, it's a summer staple, but we will read it as we've just done for the last five <laughs> minutes. So let's shift on to Orti finally. They are still in the news. I know the PAC is looking for more documents and more details about how these barter accounts are run, etc. To me, the great Irish public are speaking, Larry, on page one of the Sunday Times. They're split according to whether Ryan Tuberty in particular should return. So this isn't about the the overall culture in RTE, etc. But what's really interesting is who says Ryan Tuberty should go back. Uh, the poll is broken down on page three of the paper. And by by total, so we have 40% say he should return, 41% say he should not. And then there's 18 kind of um, wobbling in the middle, not sure where they stand. They say they don't know. And then, as I said, by gender, um, there's a more forgiving uh, audience on the female side <laughs> of the fence there. And whereas the 47% of males say no way should he be allowed back. And then when you go by age, again, youngsters seem sanguine enough. They, they don't seem to be too worried about it. Whereas um, some of our older members of our population are absolutely dead against uh, people between 55 and 64. Uh, 45% of them say no to Tuberty returning. So I don't know why this is or 
what could be conditioning it. But it, it's a tough one for RTE, isn't it? Because there's not really been a clear signal for them to pick up here, is there? No, it's very difficult to, to know. And it's very difficult to predict Ryan Tuberty's future within the organization. We know that he's meeting with uh, Kevin Backrest. I think he's met with him once already and plans to meet with him again. Uh, with Backrest signaling a decision could be made uh, as soon as the end of the month as to Ryan Tuberty's future. Uh, I think Backrest has a difficult uh, decision on his hands. Uh, and, you know, the public split uh, amplifies the difficulty of that decision. What jumped out at me in that uh, is the the number, I, I was the exact opposite of what I expected. I expected older people to be more forgiving and to give him uh, a break. The fact that young people so decisively, uh, you know, uh, say it's fine for him to come back, I'm not going to take the credit for the supposition behind why that might be, because my colleague here, Ola, deserves the credit. She made the, Tell us the theory. Come the on, we want to know now. The what is the big the, theory? The prescient observation that that is directly related to the toy show, which is probably the <laughs> oh, only time okay. that they watch, yeah. uh, the, the, which is probably the only time of the year that they watch the Late Late Show. Uh, and because Ryan, in fairness to him, does a terrific job in the toy show, he really made it his own. So maybe the that's older people whose kids are rare are like, I don't give a damn anymore. That, right? That's is that, it. It's a that's toy it. show. Maybe. That's it. No evidence to you support that. I was just <laughs> No, that's I where I started. I yeah. think it's a good guess. I think it's a very good yeah. guess. Peer review on that, will we? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Hey, Orla, can I ask you to yeah. just talk a little bit wider on it? Because we have um, the Sunday Independent talking about how Orti spends its money. Virgin mm. Media, who are their kind of chief television rivals, saying, why are they spending millions on EastEnders, which is available on BBC? And they've spent 20 million on other BBC programming that they essentially rebroadcast. So um, there's a vulnerability there, which Virgin Media have kind of uh, zoned in on. Paul Farrell, their managing director. So he, he obviously wants that kind of to be shared out among. There's a little bit of self-interest, obviously more than mm-hmm. a little bit in that, but nevertheless kind of interesting. And we also have Micheál Martin asked to, or sorry, Catherine Martin asked to take action over Orty spending in the Sunday Independent further on. This stuff is kind of still seeping away. It's still kind of, it hasn't sort of, people kept on talking about, oh, put her a line under this and when these governance reforms come in. and But it's still stuff out there. If yeah. you go to the paper, now it's on the inside pages, so it has been, downgraded, but there's still RTE governance failings sort of seeping away, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that one of the things that's important that doesn't sort of fade into the background are the really critical issues around disparities within RTE. So part of the reform process, and it was good to see Kevin Backers say this, I think, on his you know first day, I think, in the job, was in terms of looking at those reforms. And I mean, particularly across, you know, the last number of weeks, and I I, I think um, she has been superb, M.O. Kelly, who's the uh, RTE NUJ rep, you know, highlighting all of the different issues in terms of what's really needed around the working conditions of staff, the gender equality issues that are there. And she's, you know, listed a whole range of issues in terms of lack of transparency around pay. And we know how important that is in terms of things like gender pay gaps. You have to have you, ha- you need to have transparency in relation to pay. You also need to have pay scales. And I think, you know, that seriously needs to be looked at in terms of RTE, but also in terms of the conditions of people who are on fixed term contracts, um, you know, citing things like not having proper pay in terms of maternity leave, not having proper pension entitlements. These are the they really should be critical still there, issues. Yeah. And it's important that, you know, it's interesting that the poll is about whether Tuberty should stay or not. To me, they're the serious sure. issues for the long-term reform. Larry, in terms of this whole Orty story, it's been a very noisy story, very voluble story, but D Forbes has gone, um, one or two other of the, the leading kind of uh, managers have gone. But a lot of people might say, hey, we're several months into this now. You know, is, does Orty look radically different at the end of it? 
not quite. Maybe it's still a work in progress. I'd say it's a work in progress. I do think Kevin Backhurst is reform minded. I do think there are certain things he wants to get done. And the slow drip of some of these negative stories, which are on the inside pages, uh, you know, about spending money on tickets and hotels, et cetera, et cetera. Those will grab some public attention. And I think they will further the cause uh, for what I expect to be pretty far reaching reform. I think Backhurst sees uh, this as, you know, an opportunity for him to make his mark. So I'd say watch that space. Okay, watching the space with me today has been Orlo Connor, who is the director of the National Women's Council. Thank you very Orlo for your uh, sociological theories as well, right at the end there. And Larry Donnelly, an American who is happy to be living in Ireland uh, after the weekend we've had, uh, the week we've had. Thank you very much. He's a lecturer in NUI Galway and he's also a columnist with the journal.ie. On the record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation on News Talk.